Hello and welcome to another magical edition of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with the home from winter fantasy and boy are his arms tired, Teos Avadia. <laughs> welcome back, Teos. Thanks, Sean. It was so cool to be there. Everything except not getting to see you and also Mike Shea, who we thought would be there. Um, but uh, the Mastering Dungeons community was there in full force. We saw a lot of folks uh, who are on our Patreon discord uh and so it was really neat to see them they all asked about you and missed you um and you were in everyone's mind with the planescape epic you helped write uh with with many other things and so it was very cool to to hear everybody talk about you and uh, and then to get to hang out and play games with folks from our from our community it was really neat yeah i i feel terrible for missing uh but yeah, you know, the the flu waits for no person, and as you can tell, I'm still not quite right. Well, I'm so sorry. Still more not quite right than than usual. Uh, but hey, we'll get there, and there will be future winter fantasies, and there will be future conventions. So, thank you all uh, who reached out and said uh, that you you know wishing me well, and and we'll get there. We will get there. But what yep. we are going to do now is get to our listener corner, where we have a couple of questions. First, coming from Arthur Marquez via Twitter. Both in this episode and the last episode, you mentioned balance when talking about Shadow Dark. Please specify, since balance may not be a pillar in which the game seems to be built upon. As a game writer, I'm curious why a game must strive for balance. Right. Great question. Uh, yeah. There are different kinds of games, and therefore there are different kinds of balance. Um, not all balance is necessary, but generally there is some necessity in some sort of balance in a game, whether it's a competitive game, a role-playing game, uh, or, or any game. So let's start with the simplest game I can imagine, a competitive game that you might know as Rock, Paper, Scissors. <laughs> All right. If it was rock, paper, nuclear bomb, <laughs> then the game would be ruined because that game is built specifically on balance. So right there, you need all three inputs into this game to be equal. There needs to be perfect balance. Uh, so there you have a clear, unambiguous, clear-cut case where balance is super important. Uh, it's vital. The most yeah. important part of the game. And, and can I even throw in even yeah. a complex game like chess, right? We get mm -hmm. the same pieces on each side mirrored so that we can have that balance as well. Great complexity, still balanced. Right. And even uh, like who gets to go first mm. slightly unbalances the game. Yeah. Uh, to the point where, you know, some people might say the, the game is ruined because of that. Yeah. Now, is that true? Probably not, but it, it's there's a case there. Now, we're talking about competitive games. That's one sort of balance. For non-competitive games like role-playing games, the importance of balance is in the same vein, uh, but not as competitors. If you think of the game as you know, a group of people telling a story with someone leading it. The balance there is less important between the players and the game master mm. uh, because the game itself recognizes the fact that the game master can do different things to self-balance the game. Uh, they can change the strength of uh, foes that you're fighting. They can... Uh, make completely new foes. They can change the way foes work. They can do lots of different things. So the balance isn't necessarily important there. The balance that's important in role-playing games, for me at least, is the balance of what are the players inputting into this machine that, that the game is. If I am inputting something that wins every time, and the other players are inputting things that do not win or rarely win or or have a slimmer chance of winning, you risk throwing the game out of balance. 
So when we talk about balance in a role-playing game, that's one of the things that we're talking about. It's not player versus game master or even player versus game. It's player choices versus each other and the weight that those things bring to the ongoing game and the ongoing story. Yeah, and can I, it, it can extend in different directions, right? So for example, one aspect of it is reliability, right? Mm-hmm. Where if I can do a thing that will always work, but you do things that have often are going to result in failure, right? Like if you think of like the AD&D chances for a rogue to do stuff, a lot of them were just really bad percentages. So you'd try things and you'd fail, right? So if you don't like falling off a wall all the time, you might, you know, decide that the rogue is sort of a pain in the butt. Whereas if the fighter is always hitting, that might feel really reliable or whatever your examples might be. Um, Another is the extent of what you can do. and, And, you know, damage is a clear indicator, right? If I can choose a build that will easily cause great damage, I'm always the person taking down the monsters. And there is no balance to that then you know you end out 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 of whack or i think like 4e saga for star wars um had an interesting thing where the noble was very much a diplomat but could do things on the battlefield that felt in line more or less with what um combat geared folks were just shooting you know lasers and stuff like that could achieve and that allowed them to to shine well enough while also being you know the face of the party and those kinds of things but in other games the face of the party has no combat capability whatsoever. And now in those, you know, whatever percentage of your gameplay that is, they feel like they're just, you know, running around doing very little. And that's, that's a tough sense of balance, right? And your balance can be spiky or it can be, you know, very low spikes. There's a lot of, a lot of variations to it. And all that's going to impact the play of the game. Right. And so don't think of balance as two weights on a scale that are even uh, when you talk about mm-hmm. role play games. Uh, as Teo is saying, everyone needs to be and feel like they're contributing to the success of the group. In AD&D, at first level, wizards didn't do a lot. Right, They could cast one spell, and then they stood back with a crossbow or, or the staff or with whatever. <laughs> and, and that seemed unbalanced. However, when wizards got higher and higher levels, now they were the ones that were often carrying the fighters. And so as unbalanced as that was, it was argued that there is a balance in the overall game Mm -hmm. that what what you lacked at lower levels, you made up for at, at higher levels. And so there's different kinds of balance and there are different ways to look at balance no balance is going to be perfect, but you want that feeling that everyone's contributing, that n- no one character class, species, rule overshadows the others to such an extent that it makes the game not fun to play. Yeah, absolutely. And again, coming back to Shadow Dark, it is interesting in that interview that we've linked to before. Uh, one of the things Kelsey says is that she didn't really try to make the classes super balanced. Um, and that is really interesting um, because I, when I look at them, I, you know, I think there's some indications of that. Now, they, I think they are fairly balanced, but there are some differences in, in how they're going to contribute in different scenes. And so it's interesting that it wasn't her design goal you know, to, to obsess about that balance. Um, how you know how do i feel about that i mean that's that's fine right like the game is still obviously a lot of fun but it's always tough when you're playing a game and people kind of think to themselves you know this is the way to do things and and i saw that in dnd this weekend at winter fantasy where the healers tended to have massive capabilities to heal based on the fact that they multi-class mm-hmm. right so they're doing things like they are spending sorcery points to twin a heal. They are, you know, pulling into these various aspects to drive the healing further than most classes. And there were very few characters who healed who weren't in those kinds of situations. And so it becomes, it drives play in a certain direction because there's this feeling that that's what the game is begging of you, even though 
you could argue that it's not, you know, right. certainly Jeremy Crawford would say it's not. Jeremy Crawford thinks that you won't even choose an ancestry to optimize your character. Whereas that's bread and butter of what most players seem to do is to choose ability scores based on their class, right? So those, those can be, there can be such a difference between what the designer intends and how people react to it over time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I hope that helps uh, sort of delineate what we mean by balance. We mean different things in different situations, but overall we're just looking at the game and trying to comment upon its flow and its play in the sense of everyone being able to contribute equally uh, in, in that, in the term balance as we've been using it here. Uh, so thank you for that question. And next is battery Dennis via YouTube. Um, I have now listened to every mastering dungeons episode available on the channel and I have become accustomed to quality content. Thank you. I also uh, have played a long, an ongoing long-term Shadow Dark campaign on a large hex continent built using the game Random Tables. I cannot help but be disappointed with this series so far. I would love if you guys put more effort into making playing the game for a few sessions and then return and report on that experience instead of just reading through the sections. The reason why your methodical read-through of the 5e books was valuable was because you have extensive experience in playing and designing for that system. This Shadow Dark read-through is not of the same caliber. You simply haven't done the work required. It isn't a bad video, but I really like, but I really feel like you don't have the experience required for multiple video read-through. The only saving grace is the book has a short word count, uh, so we won't be blessed with too many episodes if you persist. I look forward to the news and business discussions. Uh, thank you for your efforts and my apologies for the criticism, but it is my honest feedback. And I wanted to make sure to read that uh, out completely because what Battery Dennis is saying is totally fair. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and well I written. Want, and yeah, very well written. Yeah. And I want to be clear that we understand this. We are doing this not despite this, but because of this. Uh, we could and hopefully will have time to play Shadow Dark and Chaos's case play more, and then report back on our experiences. However, I truly, truly believe that there is value and lessons to be learned in discussing a game based on its text rather than on its play. When I have been criticized or praised for adventures or games I've written, I always have to understand that players are not criticizing the text. Players are criticizing or praising the experience that they had while they play. And that experience they've had while they play is not the experience that I wrote. It's the experience that the game master has created based on what I wrote. So I always am very you know, great. I try to be grateful. Thank you for those kind words. Thank your DM. Because your DM is the one who gave you the fun time, not, not me. And I think this follows that, um, that mode as well. We need to be able to understand and utilize the game as it is written, rather than as it experience, as it is experienced through the lens of a game master. Can we also review a game based on the play of a game master? Absolutely. Can we also review a game based on the discussion of its creator? Absolutely. But I am choosing specifically not to do that because I want to see how this game looks on the page to try to draw some lessons about then why it might be played the way it is played by different folks in different ways. Yeah, that that different folks in different ways is a key thing for me, because it, we see this a lot, Sean and I in organized play where we will run an adventure, say the same adventure for four or five tables. And if you judged it by any one of them, <laughs> you might have a certain take on it. But when you run it across all of them, that's, you know, that starts to actually be where you really see what it's like. But if I just take a game system and I run it for the same table across 20 sessions, 
it's still heavily covered by how I approach things. It's the different groups that really make it jump out, whether I'm DMing or someone else is DMing. I, with Shadow Dark, it's been helpful to me to listen to things like I've, I've listened to a lot of Mike Shea talking through his playthrough. I've listened to Kelsey talk about our design. I've listened to some other folks talk about Shadow Dark playthroughs, including Graham Ward, who, you know, shared opinions. It's, been, it's talked about on our Discord. But those things, uh, while they're helpful, my, the, 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 the curiosity that I have is, is specifically around how the wording drives play. And, and so going back to the wording is like going back to the source. And like you talked about, Sean, an adventure can be great because of what the GM did. But what did the GM draw upon? And if we can go back to that, we can see what is it that, that enables or doesn't enable great play. Uh, what are the holes that are left there? Uh, and, and that's kind of what we're looking at in this review, right? Um, I, I think there, are, there is a lot of coverage out there on Shadow Dark, so there's no harm done if our approach you know, is something you want to skip for a few weeks. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it, it will also hopefully be interesting to a lot of readers and, and designers to think through what does the book's text actually tell you? Um, and we compare that if we went, if, if Sean and I went off and played one campaign, then we would color it by our campaign. And that might be colored by all the different RPGs I've played. Right. Whereas someone else who only plays D and D would have a different campaign and color it in a different way. So at the end of it, you know, <laughs> you, you, you get a different impression. I also think yeah. this comment and some of the other comments that have been sort of somewhat similar to these, um, reveal just how great this game is because people are passionate about it and so when we review blade runner not as many people are passionate about it so they go hey great that's cool i've been wondering about this i thought i might pick it up you know thanks for review now i purchased it whereas Mm -hmm. a lot of the responses here are i've been running shadow dark a lot you hurt me (laughs) you know or or you you didn't reflect how i see it and and that's yeah. fine, right? But uh, but it speaks to the game's maybe lack of definition, allowing it to be your game that you like your way. That may or may not be what's actually in the text. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> uh, so thank you for those comments and those questions. And now let's get into our news and commentary section, starting with the 50th anniversary of D&D <laughs> again and again and probably again and again <laughs> and year. again and again throughout the entire 2024 uh, campaign. So uh, YouTube, on the D&D YouTube channel, the staff took turns reminiscing about their play, what the game means to them. They thanked fans for uh, being a huge part of the process and guiding their design. Uh, any any thoughts on uh, what you saw, Teos? It's a lovely video. Uh, you know, I really like James Wyatt with these really heartfelt moments and several other people as well. Uh, footage from various conventions. I recognized uh, someone from Winter Fantasy in the video. Uh, shows like Ack Inc. And, and, you know, what I found myself thinking is, like, this is nice. I'm glad that the staff took this time to do this. And I think it also helps illustrate through their stories how personal it is for the staff to work on the game. How much... Mm-hmm it means to them that there really are this many people because they show a lot of different faces, including Liz Shu, uh, who's no longer there, but they show a lot of people uh, sharing what their, um, uh, what their experience is like and, 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 and how, how much they've been playing. Uh, there was a, a kind of rumor that went around that was sort of nasty, saying something like that n- nobody is left on the team that, you know, understands the business of publishing or something like that. And sometimes people will say things like, you know, oh, they don't have people who really understand older editions or, you know, and, and this video did a nice job of making it clear that, no, there are a lot of staff there that play all the time and really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm sure we will get more retrospectives and thoughts about uh, the 50th anniversary of D&D and what it means to people in the coming months. Well, what D&D means to Joe Manganiello has changed slightly um, as he speaks out on D&D after canceled plans for a Dragonlance live action project. So on February 8th, comicbook.com shared an interview uh, with Joe Manganiello. 
He mentioned that the live-action Dragonlance project he has been pursuing will not be moving forward. Uh, I, I could read all this. I, I really <laughs> just don't even have much to say about it other than, yeah, it's a business, and sometimes business things go poorly. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that... Uh there's there's kind of you know for the folks who want the, the 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 kind of understanding of what happened there were two sets of interviews on comicbook.com one that was aired on february 8th but recorded earlier and then the very next day joe gave a second interview and that one he really vents like the first is sort of informative you know this pilot isn't moving forward the the next was him just airing grievances and every time that wizards has worked with somebody like joe in a close capacity, right? Like putting his character into uh, Descent into Avernus. I, I, you know, I get that feeling like, oh, oh, you know, don't, don't do these things. You might regret it, right? Yeah, sure. He loves it when you add his character to his, to a book, you know, but, you know, famous folks, you just can't, <laughs> they're human like everybody else. And you, and they may, because of the the emphasis that's the spotlight they get they may kind of act out and then it can be really damaging and this was one of these moments because he says some very kind of angry things and maybe he doesn't see it as that but that's how it comes across you know he he says Baldur's Gate 3 is doing a better job than current design is doing to reflect what D&D &D is uh, he thinks that the team that designed 2014 is better than the current team that they've drifted and that, you know, Mike Merles was sort of thrown under the bus and um, and that people took the opportunity to take credit for what he did. And 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 there's a lot of this that's just, you know, it's his opinion and it gets magnified because of who he is, which is the danger of working with really famous folks like that who have such reach beyond what a normal person who might work on a book does. Right. Um, and, and it's clear that, you know, Joe and Joe says I got involved with D&D &D and I accepted being an ambassador and a paid consultant because I wanted this Dragonlance adaptation. And when he didn't get it in the end, right, then he's prepared to burn some bridges. And, and, and the hard part is wizards can't really speak out, right? Because if they do, then it's going to become a tit for tat and it's just going to get worse. So they just have to stay quiet and take it. And, and, and I thought, found myself wondering, well, what would they say? And one answer came from Dan Dillon. <laughs> who was laid off recently, you know, star designer, been there through a lot of this. And he said, I deeply implore you to take the assessment about the D&D design team from anyone who wasn't on the D&D design team with a barrel of salt. Um, and I think that's about as good as we're going to get from, from anybody at Wizards, right? Because, because they can't share their, their opinion like that. Um, None of us know what it's like on the D&D &D design team and, and how they feel other than folks like Dan Dillon coming out and saying, we really like working there. Uh, we're passionate. We believe in the 2024 product. Right. And that's that's all we know. But it's always hard. And if you look at previous editions and what we've been able to glean from them, you get similar impressions. Right. These are folks who are motivated, who love what they do and and it's complicated. It's not a simple, <laughs> not a simple output uh, when you're trying to create an edition, right? Fourth edition, third edition, the imperfections, the perfections, uh, they're hard to control or even see until you're, you're it's far behind you in the rearview mirror and you can really assess it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, we do know that they are still working on certain television shows uh, and probably video games and probably a lot more. Um, that we're not aware of. So it's, you know, it's important to put it in the context of the whole, not just this one project. Um, yeah. yeah, and a friend of the show, yeah. Dave Clark, kind of spoke to that on uh, Mastodon, and I, and I jotted that down here because I thought it was very astute. Um, he's been carefully monitoring the success of the D&D &D movie, so he's, you know, been paying attention to this kind of topic. And, and so he said, you know, why wouldn't this Dragonlance script going forward, you know, Wizards kind of can't answer that publicly. So what might there be the reasons? And he says, number one, there are at least two or maybe three other D&D &D series in development. 
Hasbro probably doesn't have the staff, attention span, whatever, to support more than that. You know, the market may not support two or three. Uh, so going and developing another one may just not make sense. Two, Joe has never produced, directed, show run any project before. So he's asking for a nine-figure series for his first project, and his qualifications are impassionate. And, and it's maybe more than that, you know, but, it, but I think there's some truth there that, like, you know, the names we've heard for the D&D series are really proven people. Um, and so there may be a little bit of that. And the third reason that Dave Clark cited was Paramount Plus picked up a D&D series already. They're in a giant development pause because they're being purchased. And so it may just simply be a timing issue. You know, it doesn't make sense to go forward with this now because of that. And then it may also be related to things like Dragonland sales and so on. You know, maybe, but, it, but it, it's probably bigger than that and more the idea that there may be a certain tone or kind of story they want to write. The script may not be indicative of that tone that they want. Uh, they may not want to have a show that is just one particular world that has broader appeal. There can be a lot of reasons that are just bigger. And if Joe is coming at them always with this particular pressure on a particular type of project, then this may have reached the point where they just decided, you know what, it's better off to just say no to this. And there you end up. Mm -hmm. So you can take a look at the comicbook.com articles. Um, both of them are linked in our show notes and you can search comicbook.com to find them as well. Um, I think it is an interesting piece, uh, 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 <laughs> a cautionary tale. It's a lot of things, right? Yeah. And if you don't want to look at that, and if you want to learn more about other games, Pelgrane Press has dropped a bit of knowledge on us. Um, if you like Gumshoe, Knight's Black Agents, Cthulhu Confidential, 13th Age, you can go to pelgranepress.com and check out their blog where they've been providing some absolutely wonderful advice. Uh, like part two of read this before running gumshoe just dropped and the blogs give you a wonderful uh, rundown of how to handle not just this game, but many games that involve sort of investigation. You can learn some lessons from them there. Anything uh, you wanted to mention about that? blog series no I've, I've been impressed by the you know they clearly made an effort to uh kind of renew their blog and they've been just great things you know free downloads like neat things you can you can get and access and and yeah awesome tips so if you're running anything pelgrain or have been curious about it check pelgrainpress.com out and over on our creator corner we are looking at sorcerers the sorcerer's fate well, I was going to say that, that I got a chance to talk to Andy Edmonds uh, of Nerdronomicon.com at the show. And, you know, he, he had kind of at one point sort of said, like, yeah, I launched a Kickstarter. And he's so humble, such a nice guy, a ton of fun. We played Mothership together. Uh, we got to hang out at some other tables. Um, and, and he's just I had to promote his uh, Kickstarter at the tables because he's just so nice about it. Um, but this is a zine, a zero level funnel for Dungeon Crawl Classics where uh, there are about one to two sessions of fun in this. And he said it includes eight new demonically corrupted creatures. There's certainly a horror twinge to this. Seven new confounding magic items, a pretty cool puzzle, handouts of creatures, essential objects and locations, and mayhem. And there's definitely this whole interaction between the village and the threat and, and the characters that seems like it, it creates a, a lot of um, po a possibility for, for different types of play. And he writes about how he has written this to support people who love to just improv or for people who really want to, you know, take what's there and, and carefully dole it out and, and work off of it. He's trying to support both styles, um, which speaks to his breadth of creating types of experiences. $10 gets you the PDF. Print PDF is 15. Um, it funded over the weekend. It ends February 29th. And, and I think it'd be great if you're at all interested in a DCC uh, game, then you should check this out. Yep, you can, f again, find that on Kickstarter, The Sorcerer's Fate. And now we are getting to our main topic today. We are going to continue our review of Shadow Dark by looking at, this week, gameplay. We've already talked about the characters, and we've talked about the magic system. And now we are going to get into the nitty-gritty. We are going to get into the dark, deep uh, lore and rules that is Shadow Dark. Uh, you, if you missed the Kickstarter, you can still buy the physical books at thearcanelibrary.com. 
So I, we dug in. I dug in. We're going to figure out how to play this game. First thing that we're told is that the player characters are referred to as crawlers. So that, again, reinforces this theme that it's going to be a dungeon crawl. Uh, you are going to be going into the dark, and it may not be the dark of a dungeon. It may be the dark of a forest or a sea caves or some other scary, discreet place that you uh, must crawl through in order to find the gold and the magic uh, and therefore the experience points that you are looking for. And one of the first things that we are told in this section is don't rely just what's on the character sheet. Talk things through and solve problems that way. If you want to search the room, search all the room. Describe what you do. And this is a fine style of play. It can be great fun, especially if you're used to a fifth edition where things are often summed up with just a check. Uh, having the opportunity and having the play style available to you to go to the desk and search all the drawers, to go into the closet, to lift up the carpet that's on the floor, to open the suit of armor and check inside. All of that can be really engaging. It can be really uh, just, just a lot of fun. Yeah. However, <laughs> what was I going to say, Teos? <laughs> well, it, it also can be punishing, right? Because if you didn't, I mean, the AD&D example is, you know, I didn't check the giant lizard's stomach, so I didn't find the magic shield, or I didn't look in the, I didn't say I was looking in the pillow, so I didn't find the gold that the bandit put inside of him. And any number of examples from Temple of Elemental Evil. Um, and, and I think that, you know, this is another case of where things aren't necessarily spelled out here, and, and I'm not sure that they're even in the later sections, which is the interaction between this and other parts of the game, that the connections aren't sort of spelled out here. I think why this works really well is unlike AD&D or other games where it says things like, you know, make sure you lift the helm's visor and nothing is looking back at you or, you know, that there might be something under the carpet or whatever. You are an initiative, right? And so because you're going to be an initiative, you're going to take turns doing things, reacting to things. And so the good gameplay happens when you put things in that are interesting and evocative that will result in somebody interacting with them on their initiative, which will cause play to be rewarding and interesting rather than the way, say, in D&D 5e or in, in some other editions, you walk into a room and you just sort of roll your perception check or even tell the DM to use your passive and you just want to receive a bullet list of everything you found. Right. So mm -hmm. this is trying to drive that sort of no, you tell me what you do. And it's doing so again in a really incredibly efficient amount of words to say, mm -hmm. you know, you drive it, but it works because of that initiative system. And it works if the DM is reacting to that and understands how to use that properly. Right. The, the crux of a game like this is that the game master and the adventure, this, the setting of the dungeon has to be top notch mm -hmm. because if there's a lack of balance, I'll use that word again. If there's a lack of balance to what the game master presents or has created, it can either be way too detailed and boring mm -hmm. or way too quick and prone to let something slip. So if you're going through a dungeon and you come to a room with six distinct cool objects or areas to be uh, explored, as you're an initiative and as each player goes to a different thing, if there's not something special about it, 
it turns boring very quickly. I check out the pool of water. It's just a pool of water. Okay. I check out the statue. It's yeah. just a statue. Then when there is something important four rooms away, you're more likely to have the characters not take the time to check it as thoroughly as necessary because they've wasted wasted time. Sometimes they would say it's wasted. Sometimes they would say it's not. But depending on your players, wasted time doing all these other things. So they forget the statue in this room. Right. And then they miss the important thing. So it takes a very deft touch from a game master, both as the creator of the content and as the person presenting the content, to make it fun for the widest variety of players. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We will continue to come back to this yeah. uh, because it, it sort of rears its head throughout the gameplay section. Uh, so we go from outside the sheet to rolling the dice. Um, we hear about advantage, disadvantage, and canceling. Um, if you have advantage, guess what? You roll the die twice and and you take the higher. If you have disadvantage, you roll the die twice, take the lower. And it says, if you are uh, receiving advantage and disadvantage, they cancel each other out. It does not specifically say if you have multiple mm -hmm. instances of advantage. So if you have two instances of advantage for some reason, but one disadvantage, it doesn't say whether they cancel out or not. I assume they do, mm -hmm. but it's not specifically yep. mentioned. We see rules for natural 20s and natural 1. Um, we talked a little bit about this before relative to spells. You know, 20 is a max success. You're attacking, you hit, you, do, you would crit on a 20, double damage the dice or double the numerical spell effect. Some spells do or do not have numerical spell effects. Uh, 1 is a failure. Uh, and there's there's some uh, vague wording here, things like uh, an attack, it says an attack roll automatically misses and might even strike an, al strike an ally. Does that mean that if I'm adjacent every time I should, you know, it's unclear what I should really do as DM with this information here. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe a one causes a negative effect. What should that be? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... It, it made me curious, is there a later section that's going to actually spell all of this out for me or not? Yeah. Um, as as the game master, as someone who's reading this for the first time to try to figure out how to run it, <laughs> I'm still not sure. Yeah, and this is something that, you know, 5e has done, I think, increasingly in the 2014 version is this idea that I'm going to put a lot of the rules of the game up front and say the player's handbook, and the DMG is going to refer to that. And sometimes it does so really cleanly. And sometimes like in wilderness exploration, it is such a mess of going back and forth. And I think that's something that if I were to get a second edition of Shadow Dark, I would like to see a little more clarity of when I might find something later in the book and where as a DM, uh, because there are things like this where I keep thinking to myself, will I find rules for this in the DM section? You know, what exactly is the DM section and <laughs> things like that? <laughs> Right. Is there a DM section? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And it, it really just goes back to creating anything is hard. Creating a game, even a simplified, a more simplified version of D&D &D like Shadow Dark does is, is terribly difficult. Yeah. And trying to get everything uh, into its own page is wonderful. I... I try to do that whenever I work on something and you often end up leaving something out that may have been better off put in uh, to get that simplicity of one page per rule uh, yeah. down. Yeah. The, the next die we learn about is the D6 decider. So if there's something that may be good or may be bad about to happen, the DM rolls a D6. On a one, two, or three, it's bad for the players. On a four, five, or six, it's good for the players. Okay. Seems seems reasonable. Uh, then next we hear about the luck token. The luck token can be given for 
the types of play that D&D might give you inspiration for, right? Doing something brave, doing something fun, doing something yeah. smart, doing something that causes the game master to say, hey, cool. You can only have one luck token at a time per player, and you can spend it to re-roll any die roll. Doesn't say D20 roll, it says any die roll. So that D6 decider roll, I guess technically you can use that to re-roll that or damage rolls or healing rolls. Um unless other unless later we're told otherwise. I guess that might be a DM roll. It does say any roll you just made. So if your DM okay. let you roll the decider, then you could. Okay. <laughs> Okay, perfect. But, Thank you. But yeah, oh, yeah, but it is it is interesting this idea, and then you have to use the new result. It's not a best of. Um, and, and what I hear is that you know this is one of these cases where luck tokens sort of are an important part of play that isn't spelled out here to to the GM because mm -hmm. things like when we reviewed spells and how you know your spellcasting can get shut down. If you're a spellcaster, you're probably going to want to really reserve these luck tokens for canceling out or hopefully canceling out a spellcasting failure. But that also means other classes can then have more latitude in the application of luck tokens to things like attacks or mm -hmm. interactions with the environment, right? Things like that. Yeah. And, and we are told that if you give out two to three luck tokens per player per session, you're leaning toward a more pulpy game sort of quick action pulp if you don't give out any or give them out very rarely you're going to get a darker grittier game and, and i and, love this yeah. sorry go ahead finish well, it, again. yeah it's it's important to realize that this sort of currency and we've talked about it before right this sort of currency is important in games that are very deadly or very swingy when one role can really just end your your character's <laughs> life or end the session or end the campaign. You know, it's important to have these things. And as you said, Teos, things can go very wrong very quickly in a Shadow Dark game. I can tell that just from reading. I don't need to play it. I, yeah, I can see yeah. it. Um, so having these luck tokens um, is a way to make the game more, I don't want to say palatable, but mm -hmm. make the game flow more smoothly for the players yeah. by giving them. And if you don't give them at all, I think you could expect a pretty short uh, campaign. Which, yeah, and that's really interesting too, because in one conversation I was having with uh, somebody who likes Shadow Dark a lot, they were saying, well, you know, the answer is luck tokens. You know, these are what balance out things like spellcasting. And I said, okay, but you might not have any if you're running a dark gritty campaign which is sort of how i define shadow dark to begin with <laughs> darker and grittier so you know that's a, another case where, where it would be nice if the game talked to you a bit and said you know hey here's what we find right that that uh if you go dark and gritty be aware that this might be a little more it's not just dark and gritty it could also be frustrating right mm -hmm. because the luck tokens enable this kind of play all right, now we get into using stats, which basically just tells us the difference between the various stats. Um, and if you are familiar with 5e D&D, &D, you are familiar with the stats and pretty much what they are used for. Yeah. And the next section is making checks. Now here we get uh, some interesting differences from 5th edition, uh, I think, because it the, the book tells us, the text tells us, Usually you succeed at what you're trained to do without rolling. So a wizard can read the magical runes because that's what wizards do. The thieves can find traps automatically if they're looking in the right place. You can see threats that are sailing above you without having to make a check. You can find the secret doors in a passage if you look for those secret doors in the passage where they are. No checks required. Uh, and the same thing for social encounters. It says what you say is what you say. And if it would work, it works. You don't need to make charisma checks in order to get someone to believe you if you if what you say is believable. That said, we then get the DCs for the different types of checks, easy being nine, 
normal being 12, hard being 15, or extreme being 18. The GM should call for checks, we are told, if the following is true. The action can have a negative consequence if it fails. It requires skill, and there's a time pressure in order to perform this. You're doing it under duress. Uh, so it's a it's pointing you in a direction, but it's not quite going all the way to say exactly when a check should be made versus when it shouldn't. Yeah, the, the part about thieves really is one I reacted to because in the character class section, it just sort of mm -hmm. says thieves are adept at this, at these kinds of things. It doesn't say automatically succeed at this. And this text makes it sound like, well, you always find a trap if you're searching in the right area. And can you always disable it then? And can you always, you know, but then it gives us a DC of picking a poor lock, but maybe that's not for a thief and all thieves automatically pick all locks. There's a little grayness there that I would have loved a little bit better explaining um, because, you know, like it's fine at your table, you can come up with what you like, you know, your cadence mm -hmm. of, of whatever it might be. Um, but if you, if you become a larger community, and you start interacting with one another, you know, as we saw with D&D's history, then it becomes important to have a, an under, a more common understanding, right? Um, where, where you have a, you know, if I go out and show up and play at somebody's shadow dark table and I say, great, you know, I'll check the trap, you know, I, I'll, 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 I'll look at this and if it's trapped, I'll disable it. And then someone might say, well, you know, roll. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah, or, there's or no the time pressure. Uh, I already have the skill. Yeah. And right. The 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 issue with with phrases like a negative consequence for failure is is failure its own negative consequence. Yeah, and and there's an example of gameplay uh later in in the book on page uh, 99 and such. Mm -hmm. Where it says things like, you know, you're working by feel, so make a DC 12 dex check. Your thievery talent would normally give you advantage on this, but the blinding darkness uh, cancels it. And so, and, and that's to like pull out a torch and light it. And I'm mm -hmm. like, wait, where does it say that you have advantage on lighting checks because you're a thief? But maybe, maybe that's oh, one other, you know, there's just a, enough that it's like, I wish it was a little more spelled out um you know what that's giving me i don't see right. and i wonder their talents that gives you advantage on yeah, i don't know but maybe it's just the idea you know so is it advantage is it success is it it's a little gray there right. so folks watching if you see something we're missing here you know leave us a comment i'd, I'd love to know kind of what language is right. driving is there some clarity in the language that really drives to how that should work mm -hmm. yep and it's it's fine to create a set of tools for a game master to create the story and the experience that that, that they want to create uh just spell it out up front and say these are not hard and fast rules Use use this to mm -hmm. create the experience that that you want to create, yep. um, because when there is that disconnect, especially with certain rules, that's when the balance used in a different way of the game tends to break down. The balance between what the players are bringing to the table in terms of their storytelling versus what the game master is bringing to the table in terms of their input into the storytelling. Uh, so if I expect to be able to find the trap because I looked on the, the door in the exact right location, and then I'm still told to make a check, uh, that might be a, a disconnect uh, yeah. that, that, would be small for some, but insurmountable for others. Uh, yeah, absolutely. In terms of, yeah. We then go to time and initiative. Uh, we are told that time in game and out of game are the same in general. <laughs> and this is a really interesting gameplay mechanic. It may not seem like a mechanic, but it is. 
because what it replicates is this tension between wanting to do things very, very slowly and carefully versus needing to do things very, very quickly because there are wandering monsters and your, your torches is guttering. Um, and so if it is put into play constantly, it can be a great mechanic. That that tension of you there are six things in the room. Yeah. Are you going to check all six things? Well, let's let describe exactly to me how you do this. Uh now there's that tension, the tension of okay, this is what I do. And you start talking more quickly. And you, you know, and it it uh it adds some drama to it, but it has to be a drama that the entire group appreciates. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's where the book could have a little bit of, of discussion about, you know, these are the, the general rules and here's, and, and, and kind of address it a bit more about making the call and says every game, every moment in the game doesn't have to be accounted for in real time, but you could add a little more to explain the why of that. And like playing with Kelsey, she at one point said, I like to do the following, right? So even though it's her book, she has a way she likes to do it. And I totally understand that. That's, you know, I've written many a thing that the words I used for the, pay, for the page, you know, what other people read are not what I use in my game because mm -hmm. I have a particular view on the game and I know that. And so what I'm writing is for everybody for the default. What I do is what I do for my particular style. And that makes a lot of sense. And Kelsey here specifically was th this example of, you know, when to just abandon the game time or the in-game because it's the torch driving the play. So you want to know when that timer is going to run out. So if you hand wave things, you should be then adjusting the timer. So that's why it says when time passes, the GM players move any timers down, right? Spells, whatever you might have, the torch, that needs to be adjusted as well, which can be a bit of a pain, right? With whatever you're using to track things. Um, and then, but, but there is that beauty of, of, which can be fun in this game of saying like, hey, we're driving play by going turn after turn, turn after turn. But then when, you know, we're just going to sit down and, and, you know, have a banquet with the orcs or we're going to, um, uh, you know, spend some time to set up a trap. We don't have to sit and watch that. We can just move forward and, and adjust mm -hmm. the timers accordingly. Ten minutes pass, right? An hour right. passes. And, and, and I would totally agree with that, except the example that is given if the characters want to spend 10 minutes examining a room from top to bottom, the GM and the players can agree that time passes. The whole, we just got this in-game and out-of-game are the same. And my, my best example in my head was, yes, examining this room, you need to be detailed, you need to up the tension. Is this, are we going to find the hidden gold? Are yeah. we going to trigger the, the trap? Are we going to unleash the monster? Do we do it quick enough before the torch goes out? All that tension. And now we're just going to say, okay, we spent 10 minutes searching the room. <laughs> what yeah. do we find? Yeah. It, 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 it seems to fly right in the face of everything that the game was trying to establish last paragraph. So I, I understand. Yeah. No, it, it yeah. does. It is contradictory, but it, but it's it's the acknowledgement that there are just going to be some cases where there's going to be, you know, like if you are preparing defenses for an attack from somebody, we're not going to sit around and make that. And, and maybe that's what it needs to say, that it's more like when the players have a, have cause to spend, and maybe it's just not the best example, right? Because this doesn't definitely seem contradictory, but when you're going to spend time to do a task, and we can all agree that time is going to go by where we're just sitting there representing, you know, don't sit there and <laughs> don't sit there quietly to wait for that time to go by no. because you have timers yeah. move that forward in those situations. Right. And sure. And I'm, you know, maybe it's like, there's so much, so many items here that to load them up will take you 10 minutes. So 10 minutes pass, or mm -hmm. um, this is such a complicated room that to search it all, it'll take you a long at the time. Do you want to do that? And then say, yes. Now, and then maybe you roll for rendering monsters, right? Okay, no, 10 minutes past, you're fine. Or wandering monsters came across and interrupt you. And yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. a little, mm -hmm. sure. No, I, I totally, I get it. I get that it needs to be yeah. done in any narrative game. Yeah. Uh, I just wish that hadn't been the example that yeah, was given. Yeah, it seems kind of uh, That's all. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we, we hear about turn order. 
So to capture this uh, feeling of moving through, initiative is rolled at the start of play, and uh, whoever has the highest initiative, you go first, and then we move clockwise around the table. And I love this, and I want to use this for 5e. Because what this does, if done right by the DM and understood by the players, is we're not going to sit and discuss everything for five minutes before we decide who's going to do what. Yeah. It's going to be you. This is the situation that you're in. Don't think about what other people are doing. What are you doing? And that way we don't get the rogue or the, the thief going up to every single door, listening, checking for traps. It's your turn. What do you do? Uh, it may not be the smartest play. It may not be the most effective play, but it is the play that the game is going to encourage. And I love it. Yep. Um, and there's, there's a lot of, there, there's a lot here that as a new player or a new GM, it's a little overwhelming, right? This sort of, there's our overall group turn to the things I do in my turn, the things the GM does in their turn um, and, and when to go to between these different modes, because I think just the time passes, you kind of like we've just tried to grok that. And then we get, well, freeform mode. Uh, you can use a loose round robin, allowing players to decide their turn order and actions before circling back to the GM's turn. And we had times when we played where Kelsey would say, we're just going to go around the table here. Right. Mm -hmm. And and the when of that isn't really, you know, I guess, you know, it's trying to tell you, you make the call. You don't just have to do this, but it, it, in, in as few words as possible. And I think this is really good for the amount number of words meant, but it, it's something you're going to have to figure out as you play of when do you switch back and forth. And the important part is you want to come back to that initiative because that's the core experience. So mm -hmm. the core experience then when you hit a moment that might cause you to either move forward in time or use a different style, um, you know, what that is. Um, uh, play is generally simple, right? A player or a monster is generally going to have an action and movement. Uh, you can move a distance equal to near. Um, you can skip an action and move again. Um, you can, and the GM is going to react to what you say you do. Uh, the GM is going to check for random encounters if needed. They're, they're going to take actions and movement for all their monsters, for any environmental effects. Um, and generally what is happening is the GM is running all of the monsters on one initiative count, right? Because that's, um, we're not rolling for initiative. It's, it's, it's you know, you're, you have the agency of everything you control. Mm -hmm. Very good. Uh, yeah, and it turns into a game that we're pretty familiar with then. Um, where you act, do your thing, the damage is done or not, consequences are there or not, and then it resets for the next player or the game master. Um, so then we get to light and torches. So we're sort of jumping back and forth and back and forth. Uh, we, we were told you need light to see. There's no dark vision for players, but monsters can generally see in the dark. Torches last an hour, so the game has a timer. And, um, and, and Sean, I, can I say, you know, yeah. one of the interesting things of the game, game success, right? Because this is a game that, as it's being kickstarted, it's being played because it was that well received, right? People were taking the, the preview PDF and running games. And so there was a lot mm -hmm. of learning and discussion. And on Kelsey's Discord, which I'm, I'm, if I had the time, I'd be there. Uh, my understanding is it's very, um, uh, like there's a lot of great ideas going on in that, in, in that community. And so people are driving play even before the game hits the shelves, right? In, in hardback form. Yeah. Um, so that whole idea as written is torches last an hour, set a timer. But now as through gameplay, people realize, you know, you, players will watch their watch too. So you need to randomize it a bit. And so there are even apps out there that will run the torch uh, and randomize it a bit, or you can, you know, roll something to, to randomize it. So this is now a way that everybody plays. 
that isn't really in the book, um, but has become sort of the de facto way to do things. And then what this game does have written is that torches in various situations can can go out because something that happened. And this is a thing that as a GM, you want to make a note on. Um, but it's not really written here and you have to kind of piece it together, which is that, you know, if that player that's carrying the torch was jostled, maybe there's a chance the torch goes out um, to drive this kind of fear and worry about things. And it even encourages you later to create situations that will do this. How often? You know, not clear, right? Something you're going to have to play with. Um, but the reason it matters and it, this also I found was a little hard for me to parse from the text. Um, first, you clearly have disadvantage on any task requiring sight. So most checks, attacks, you're going to be at disadvantage. That's no good. But also the environment becomes deadly. And the GM checks for random counter every crawling round. So there's a high probability that, or at least a decent probability, that every round of combat is a round in which another monster or group of monsters could show up with you having disadvantage to fight them. Um, the other thing is that lighting a torch is a check. <laughs> so you may or may not successfully light a torch uh, on the round that you try to do it. And then your characters are spending actions trying to light instead of fight or move or, you know, you can move and, and light, but, you know, do all that they want to do. They have to focus on on this lighting of the torch, which is cool. And it certainly was a lot of fun when when we dealt with it. Um, but but it's not quite all shaped here the way that I'd like to really be clear about. OK, I get it. And I think it's important because what I want is to drive the player behavior and have the GM have all those things be in sync. The player behavior, the GM behavior in your first session versus having to say, go online and figure out what everybody's doing and how it all works. And that's there is a great joy and a great opportunity in having a community designed game mm -hmm. uh, and but and and that's where this is so strong because the game is so well presented the game is so clear in terms of the the theme that it's trying to capture that it benefits from not being as tightly put together as we might like as game designers. Uh, but that is the risk, right? The risk is we played it. It didn't quite work. Do I spend two hours online talking to other people who have run this and made their own rules? Or do I just go play a different game? Yeah. Uh, and and th there's no right or wrong answer to that. And obviously this community and this game has captured the imagination of a lot of folks. And so in that sense, it's very strong. Um, the, the question is, will, will the audience be willing to do that forever? Yeah. Uh, or is it just yeah. capturing a limited uh, player base that is willing and wants to build their own game as they go? Yeah, I mean, and I think that because of the unique position that this game is in, mm -hmm. I mean, I think fans would 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 easily fund a second edition mm -hmm. relatively soon because mm -hmm. you could now take this, you know, awesome book mm -hmm. and you can make a version with the DM stuff in one book and the player stuff in another because there are only so many classes, but all of these releases that have come on and, and the cursed scroll and everything, you, you could pull that all together, plus all of the things that the audience has learned. So when you do have a connected player base, or at least enough mm -hmm. of your player base connected, you could do this if the players support it. Um, and it could be actually really exciting and fun for everybody. A lot of games, that's not going to be the case, right? Try convincing folks that it's an advantage that you might need to republish the book to account for all the things that have happened since publication. Uh, other people call that a problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. 3.5 or anything like that, right? Like, you know. So. Yeah. Yep, I, I am I am running out of voice. Yeah. So I think we need to call that there, but we will come back later and look at even more of the gameplay and other parts of this Shadow Dark book. Yeah, that sounds really good. I mean, Sean, if I can, just to bring things to a good stopping point, 
There are mm -hmm. sections here from movement that are pretty much what you'd kind of expect. Um, maybe the one interesting piece is that you can move through allies and you can uh, move through enemies with a check um, to kind of get through their square. Um, resting is, is about what you'd expect, but if you are somehow interrupted, there's a check to make sure whether you regain things or don't. Um, that's interesting. Um, you can put torches together to make a campfire, which is a, an interesting piece of, of the rule. And then based on your danger levels, when encounters happen. Um, the last thing I'll add so that we can start with combat next time is, is that uh, Stealth and Surprise has a... It tries to do a job. Of, uh, it, it's a tough challenge to always describe hiding and sneaking properly um, so that it's not super ambiguous, but gives you flexible play, right? That's the tough. <laughs> Could you have something harder to do? Um, so that they have a kind of distinction between sneaking and hiding that, that is not kind of fully clear from these rules. Um, but uh, but it, surprise gives you advantage. Um, and uh and and you get to take a turn before the combat initiative roll if you have a surprise which is kind of cool and then next time we can start yeah. off with combat sounds good i want to thank everybody out there for listening uh and i want to thank specifically our patreon supporters our master of dungeon supporters our master of realm supporters who get a shout out in our show notes and the Masters of the Multiverse patrons, we're going to give you a shout out here and we'll see how many coughing fits I go through. Uh, you want me to do I it? This. Oh, please. <laughs> uh, thank you to Keith Amon of the Monsters Know What They're Doing, Lou Anders from Lazy Wolf Studios, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, who's been on fire with all the blog posts, Evil John, John Carney, I like your dancing, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdonomicon, Nathan Fuller, uh, everybody go back. Andy's a, a, a Kickstarter. Nathan Fuller, The Mighty Jerd, great blog posts or great discussions recently. Ben Heisler and Paige Leitman. I got to play Mothership with them. Sean Hurst, Chad Jackson. Great seeing you. Uh, Brian King, Jim, which was great to hang out with him. Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover. Chad Lynch, The Mathemagician, Eric Mengi. Oh, so good. The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Mike Olson, Mighty Zeus, Post-Fiction RPG Audio, Robert Pasley, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, uh, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Simons, Tres, Joe Tyler, James Walton, Graham Ward, thanks for last episode, and Chris Webster. So thank you, everybody. As Sean always tells us, if you like our show, two things you can easily do. Consider supporting us, if you don't already, by the patreon.com slash masteringdnd. And leave us a review on the podcast listener of your choice that you happen to use. Um, subscribing via YouTube helps us, giving us those thumbs up notifications. That's all fantastic if you want to see our faces. Uh, you can find Sean on all the super cool media places and also the terrible ones at Sean Merwin. You can find me at alphastream.org. And then you can get to basically everywhere else, including uh, as, uh, I'm mainly on Mastodon. Um, and uh, Sean, what are we going to do now? I'm going to go kill some cough drops. <laughs> now I want to design a cough drop monster. Uh, all the best to you, Sean. Get better soon. I'll, I'll talk to you when you can talk.